I really do. Thanks for that word. Let's talk about sex. Turn to Hebrews chapter 13. Hebrews chapter 13. Have I ever introduced you to my son? Let me tell you about him. I got this son, and he's four years old. Going to be five next month. Greatest kid in the world. If you have ever seen him on campus riding around in his little tricycle or jumping up and down all over me, you would admit that he is the cutest little kid you have ever seen in your entire life. That's not bragging. That is fact. He has, um, he's got ears perpendicular to his head. Really, really cool looking kid. Before we moved to Canyon Country in June, we were living in Burbank and we lived on this four lane highway. And he developed, my son developed a fascination for trucks, loves trucks, but he doesn't like the stationary kind. He likes the moving variety. And we had a real problem with him when he was growing up of running into the street because he likes to see trucks close up. You can see all the parts move that way, you know. And so he was always making a mad dash into the street. And we always had to grab him and say, David, no, no. And then he turned right around and run back into the street. And, uh, you know, believe it or not, I have a little bit higher mentality than a four-year-old. And I know what will happen if he continues that behavior. It won't be long before he's looking at a truck belly up. You know what I'm saying? Crunch, smash in its history. So what we did was, very creative on our part, we took a white garden hose and we stretched it out across the middle of the front lawn. And we told David, I brought him right up to the, right up to the hose. I said, David, if you step over that garden hose, you will get what we call in our home, I'm not sure what they called it in yours, but in our home we call it a SWAT. So David, if you step over that garden hose, what will happen to you, David? He looked up at me, he smiled, he said, SWAT, Daddy. I said, David, that's right. You got it. You understand. You know what that kid did? That kid, no matter what anybody tells you, is totally, morally, absolutely corrupt. That kid is totally depraved. <laughs> Inherited it from his mother. That kid looked up at me. That kid looked up at me, and he got this twinkle in his eye and promptly deposited his right foot on the other side of that garden hose. Upon which time he got what we call in our home, I'm not sure what they call it in yours, but in our home we call it a SWAT, Daddy. You know what I'm talking about? Where I take my hand and apply it to a certain padded part of his outward anatomy. He got a SWAT. Now let me ask you a question, please be honest with me. How many of you think that I am cruel, heartless, unfair in imposing that limitation on my son? May I see your hand, please? One person, and I knew it would be done. There is no one else who would conclude that, you realize, do you not, that that is a loving act on my part to impose a limitation. I'm not trying to ruin his fun. I know it's a blast to run into the street. I know it's great to look at trucks close up. I know that's fascinating. I understand that. But David, I also know that if you keep running into the street, you're going to get munched, kid. And so I have as a loving father. Isn't that an act of my love? Sure it is. A little basic adolescent psychology here. When I lay that line down and I say, do not step over that line and I will punctuate the point with pain, very effective, I am doing that as an act of protection for my son, trying to train him to change his lifestyle from a destructive one to a productive one. Now, you recognize that with the exception of one person here. You recognize that reality. Let me ask you a question. Why is it that when God lays out a garden hose, and God says, do not step over that garden hose. 
And if you step over that garden hose, you will get what we call in our kingdom, I'm not sure what you call it in ours, but in my kingdom, God says, you will get a swat. Why is it when God does that, we immediately react and cry out, unfair, cosmic killjoy, divine party pooper, old man with a beard, outdated, get with the times, God. Why is it that we react that way? Isn't the principle the same? Is that not an act of God's love in imposing upon you and me certain limitations because God knows that if we step over that hose, it will destroy us? Isn't that true? You can entitle this message if you're taking notes, Sex and the Single Christian, or the title that I would prefer, Moral Suicide. Moral Suicide. Hebrews chapter 13, let me show you one place where God laid out a garden hose and said, do not step over. Hebrews chapter 13 and verse 4. God said this, let marriage be held in honor among all. Now, like everything else God has said, we have done a 180 with that thing. And in our society, marriage is anything but honored. We have reduced the sanctity of marriage to nothing more than a legal binding contract, a piece of paper. God says, let marriage be held in honor among all and let the marriage bed be undefiled. For fornicators, a fornicator is an unmarried person who engages in a sex act. Fornicators and adulterers. An adulterer is a married person who engages in sex with someone who is not their marriage partner. Fornicators and adulterers, God will what? Swat. Judge. God will judge. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, God repeats it. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 and verse 3. For this is the will of God. I am often asked in question and answer sessions, how can I know the will of God? This is the will of God. This is the will of God, your sanctification. Million dollar word simply means, foundation students will rattle this off instantly, set apart as a holy person for a holy purpose. Sanctification. This is the will of God, your sanctification. That is, that you abstain from sexual immorality. That each of you know how to possess his own vessel, that is, body, in sanctification and honor. Don't live in lustful passion like the Gentiles or the unbelievers who do not know God. And that no man transgress and, now listen, important word, defraud his brother. To defraud is a general term, but in this context it means this. To stir up or arouse sexual desire in another which they cannot righteously fulfill. So God goes beyond intercourse itself and God says don't even stir up that lustful passion in another. Don't think that you can go all the way up to the point and as long as you don't engage in the full-blown act itself, you're okay. God draws the line way back. And the standard is much higher than that. The standard is don't even arouse in another person a sexual desire that cannot be righteously fulfilled. Because as Russ pointed out so well on Wednesday, the Lord is the avenger in all these things. God has drawn a garden hose and God has said this, do not engage in sex outside of marriage. Period. That is the standard. Don't even arouse such desires in another. That is defrauding. Don't do it. Period. That is absolute. That is binding. That is God's standard. Now, I know that you know God has said that. 
That is nothing new. But I wonder if you know why God has said that. I have read many books on Christian dating, all of which have said the same thing. No sex outside of marriage. That is nothing new. I have not, in all of my extensive reading and preparing talks for my own young people on the subject, I have never read one place or heard on one tape anywhere anyone define why God has said that in the first place. Everyone knows what God has said, but do you know why God said it? And to me, what God has said loses its punch if you don't understand the reasoning behind it. So I am here today to define for you why God drew that line. Why did God say no? Is He a cosmic killjoy? Is He a divine party pooper? Is He unfair because He allowed your body to explode with hormones and desires and then puts a straitjacket on you and me and says, No, is that unfair? Why did God say no? And I am going to answer that question today. Before I do, though, let me consider this with you. Why has sex become such an explosive subject today? We are literally consumed mentally with the subject. That hasn't always been the case. Let me quickly lay out for you why this has become such an explosive subject. And I'll just go through them quickly with minimum of comment. Number one, sex is a natural, normal, God-given desire. It is a natural, normal, God-given desire. Don't think that you are carnal if you have a desire for sex. That doesn't mean you're carnal or unspiritual if you have a desire for sex. All that means is that God did the wiring right. Your plumbing is connected. That's all that means. We are sexual creatures and we have been given a God-given desire for sex. That is normal. It can be as intense and as strong as your desire to eat. It is an appetite that is not carnal or unspiritual. That is the way it is. But because it is a desire that God has given us, it has become an explosive subject. Secondly, the world has literally been given over to it. We are living in a sex-saturated society. It is everywhere, from programming on TV to theaters to billboards. It's everywhere. You own a tire company. You want to sell tires. Michelin. How do you do it? Stack up a bunch of tires, put a bikini on a girl's sticker in the pile, and remove the tires one by one. You'll capture the attention of your audience. Sex is used to sell everything from suntan lotion to tires. We have been given over to it. Thirdly is peer pressure. Peer pressure. It might interest you to note that in this country now, among high school students, nine out of ten guys, nine out of ten guys and eight out of ten girls will lose their virginity before high school graduation. If you are a virgin this morning, you are an endangered species in society. And I've been in plenty of locker rooms during halftime at football games, and I know the talk that goes on. It is raw sewage. And I know that these poor guys who are trying to maintain some semblance of, of uh, holiness in their lives are literally inundated with comments like, uh, well, if you haven't scored, man, you're not macho. What's wrong with you? You gay? And guys have been literally assassinated if they don't have some uh, story they can brag about. A Friday night sexual encounter. A youth pastor friend of mine down south of here handed me a copy of the San Diego County. The headline reads this, San Marcos High School's one in five pregnancy figure shocks community. San Marcos High School. And it goes on to say this, 
The news has rocked this quiet bedroom community. Well, they got that right, bedroom community. More than 150 girls at San Marcos High School, about one out of every five at the school, were pregnant during the last school year. One out of five. Last week, you were horrified to read, I'm sure as I was, that L.A. City Schools has come up with a brilliant solution for the problem. They are establishing it as a pilot program, in fairness to them, a sex clinic on campus where young people will be given free of charge contraceptive devices in order to stem the tide of teenage pregnancy. Brilliant. Can't you see it? Make your way to the uh, student store and you have the pen machine and the diaphragm machine. Drop your quarter and pick up your diaphragm. God help us. Peer pressure. Number four, we have redefined the word love in our society. Redefine the word love. We have made love to be nothing more than an act done in the corner of a bedroom rather than a biblical concept of love as a commitment. Not an emotion, not an act, but a commitment. We have redefined the word love. Oh, Donald, you hit the nail on the head, man. God didn't put us here to live like dogs. But we have taken the beautiful concept of sex and reduced it to nothing more than what dogs do in heat. How tragic. Number five, fear of rejection. Because of the breakdown of the family, there are young people today, perhaps some of you, who will pay any price for acceptance and love and could face anything except the loss of a boyfriend or a girlfriend. And if that's the price I have to pay my own purity, then I guess that's the price tag. Tragic. Number six, we've been taught that there are no absolutes. There are no absolutes. Two words pervade society today. Two words. Yeah, but. And everything that God has said is an absolute. We come along and say, yeah, but. We love each other. Yeah, but. We're going to get married. Or try this one. Yeah, but. Somebody said this to me just two days ago. Yeah, but. We've got to determine if we're sexually compatible before we nail the thing in concrete by getting married. Oh, my. I have enough confidence in God's design that when you get married, you're sexually compatible. Don't worry. I think things will work out just fine. Adam and Eve didn't have any problem, and I don't think you will either. Oh, and isn't it amazing how Adam and Eve got along fine without all of the Christian sex manuals? Can you believe that? Hard to believe, isn't it? Number seven. Why is this so explosive? Easy access to birth control devices. I've already alluded to that. And if that doesn't work, because after all, no birth control device is 100% effective, right? So if that doesn't work, then just kill it. Abortion. Let me show you where we've come in this country. If you want to get an abortion, you can go down to the clinic, pay your money, however much it is, and have the abortion. The law will not permit the clinic from notifying your parents. But if you're under 18 and want your ears pierced, your parents have to sign a permission slip. Can you imagine? You can kill your unborn baby without the parents ever finding out legally, but you need a permission slip for your ears pierced. And I say, boy, we're right on target, aren't we, in this country? Could that be what God meant in Romans 1 when he talked about a depraved mind? Number eight, curiosity. You wonder what it's really like, don't you? It's gotten so much press that you just wonder what it's really like. And like the old proverb says, curiosity killed the cat. Number nine, sex education. 
sex education, where students are taught details of the sex act, complete with full-color charts, but are never, ever taught God's morality governing the use or expression of sex. Ten, the pleasure it provides. It's fun. Don't let anybody ever tell you differently. It's fun. Physical ecstasy. And because it is so much fun, it becomes an allurement, an attraction, a seduction. And then number 11, and I really think that this is um, probably the bottom line. Life has become so empty. Life has become so empty that people are looking for cheap thrills anywhere they can find it. And it really is very inexpensive, isn't it? And so it's just become a goosebump in a bedroom someplace. Now let me give you my philosophy about sex so you know exactly where I'm coming from. My definition of sex is as follows. Sex is God's wedding present to the human race. One of the most beautiful things God ever created. And He created it for the pleasure of you and me. When my wife and I got married about eight and a half years ago now, one of the fun things was to come home from the honeymoon and walk into an apartment completely filled wall to wall with presents. I don't know about you, but I like to get gifts. By the way, there's six weeks of shopping days until Christmas. Just keep that in mind. If you don't know what to give me, a check is fine. But uh, we love to give gifts, get gifts, and give them. And um, we opened our gifts, and I'm not kidding, we got five crockpots, seven toasters, and 25 sets of towels which we put to good use when our friends get married. Now we have gifts to give. You understand? <laughs> but there was one gift that we got that nobody else gave us. It was the most enduring gift. The crock pot broke. Towels wear out. But God gave us a gift, the quality of which was such that we can enjoy the rest of our married life together. He gave us the gift of sex. Nobody else duplicated it. It is precious to us. It is sacred. It is holy. It is very, very special. And I am grateful that God loved me enough that He exercised His creative intelligence and came up with a gift nobody else could duplicate. And He handed it to me and handed it to my wife on our marriage night. What a beautiful gift. It is a lot like fire. Fire is a beautiful thing. We heat our homes with it. We cook our food with it. We sterilize things with it. We appreciate the beauty of fire. But when it is out of control, if it is ever used in an inappropriate place, it can be the most destructive force known to man. And sex is that way. Beautiful. But you use it in the wrong place at the wrong time with the wrong person. It will destroy you. It will destroy you. And because of its destructive potential, God came along and laid out a garden hose and God said, do not step over. And I will begin to define for you now the destructive force, the potential of sex. It can destroy you in any one of 13 areas. We're going to move fast. 
So get ready. Number one, the misuse of sex will destroy your future wife's or husband's ability to fully trust you in marriage. You engage in sex now. It will destroy your future wife's or husband's ability to fully trust you in marriage. My marriage is built upon a rock-hard foundation. And that foundation is a mutual trust of each other. I'm a youth pastor as well as a professor here. I am around young girls all of the time. And I don't think it's being crass to tell you that the opportunities for sex are everywhere. Everywhere. There are times because of my schedule, when I travel to a camp or a conference, my wife is not able to come. We don't make a habit of that, but occasionally it works out that way and I'm alone. I want you to know that my wife doesn't have to worry about me one second when I'm gone. She trusts me completely. There has never ever entered into her mind the possibility or the doubt of my faithfulness to her. She knows that no matter what the setting and how many people are around, she knows that I will be faithful to her and she knows that for one reason. And that is, when we were dating, I did not touch that woman. I didn't touch her. And because I was able to keep my hands off then, she knows I'm able to keep my hands off now. I am proven good. In Genesis chapter 2 and verse 24, God defined marriage. He said this, For this cause a man shall leave his father and mother, cleave to his wife, that's the marriage vow, then they shall become one flesh. Then, after the marriage vow, after the pledging of their lives to each other, and that sexual act, the becoming of one flesh, is both a beautiful physical experience, but it is also a very, very beautiful symbol, a symbolic experience of the fact that when you get married, you are becoming one with your husband or wife. And that is symbolized as the two bodies come together in the sex act. And because I was willing to bite a bullet and declare war against my hormones, and was resolute in the face of my desires that burned in my heart. Because I didn't touch that woman, she knows that she can trust me now. And I want you to know that aside from the flowers and the poems and the gifts and everything else that I used to give my dear wife when we were dating, the one thing that convinced her beyond all of that that I had a love and a respect for that woman was the fact that I respected the most important part of her her purity. She knew that I was madly in love with her because I was willing to limit my own desire in respect of her purity. And gentlemen, don't ever miss it. That is the kind of man these women here this morning want to date. Number two, you misuse sex now you will destroy the one unique experience that you will ever share with your marriage partner. You will destroy the one unique experience you will ever share with your marriage partner. 1 Corinthians chapter 6. 
1 Corinthians chapter 6 says this, verse 16. Do you not know that the one who joins himself to a harlot, a prostitute, is one body with her? For God says the two will become one flesh. Flee immorality. Every other sin that a man commits, he commits outside of the body. But the immoral man sins against his own body. Now let me tell it to you the way it is. My wife and I do an awful lot of things together. We have a blast together. We do all kinds of crazy things together. But I'll tell you the truth. Everything I do with my wife, I have already done with somebody else. And everything she does with me, she has already done with somebody else. But there is one unique experience that we have not shared with anybody else. There is one unique experience that only the two of us have experienced together. And it is unique to us. And because of that, it is very precious to us. And it is a bonding kind of a thing to us. And that is the ecstasy of the marriage bed. Unique to the two of us. If I had shared that with someone else in dating, if, God forbid, I should share that with somebody else now, I will have taken the one unique experience that is unique to the two of us and polluted it with somebody else's body and raped it of its significance. How tragic. How tragic. You will destroy the one unique experience that you will share with your marriage partner. Number three. You misuse sex now. It will make you feel dirty and make you feel cheap. It will make you feel dirty and it will make you feel cheap. In youth ministry now for 11 years, I have had many, many young people come to me and confess the fact that on a date, they blew it morally and were crushed by it. And without exception, I have had people tell me that the first thing they did after throwing their virginity into the gutter, they went home and the first thing they did, any idea? Took a shower. Took a shower. They felt dirty. They felt cheap. Psalm 51, verse 3. This is after David committed adultery with Bathsheba. Remember the story? Up on his roof one day looking over into the neighbor's yard and Bathsheba skinny dipping in the jacuzzi, right? And I mean, his eyes were wide and he invited her over and committed an act of adultery with her and he cried out in brokenness. Psalm 51, after confronted by the prophet Nathan, thou art the man, he crushed. He was crushed inside and he fell to his knees and he cried out, verse 3, Psalm 51, I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. I'm dirty. Dirty. Girls, write it down, please. A tomato is never as good after it has been squeezed. You get the point? It makes you feel dirty and cheap. And I don't know why it is that the girls are always cheap shot at this place. There are some guys I've had in my youth group I'd love to drop kick right over the back wall. They'll tell me how many girls they have scored with and they're such macho men and such lovers because they have gotten it on with so many gals. But then they'll say, but when I get married, I'm going to marry a virgin. Oh. Virginity is a, is a bisexual quality. Men and women can both lose virginity. This is not uniquely a female quality. Do you understand that? And so men, please understand that we are dirty and cheap as well when we succeed in giving up our purity. Number four, it'll rob you of joy in your life. It'll rob you of joy in your life. I have seen people literally change before my eyes. The radiance of their faces become hard 
after they have given themselves over to immorality. Psalm 51 and verse 12, Restore to me, David cried out, the joy of thy salvation. You lose joy in your life. People have often asked me, why did God give me the desire for sex and then put such a limitation on me? Why not wait until I am in a position in life where I can get married and then zap me with the desire then? Here's the answer. The reason God has allowed your body to explode with such desires now and then He puts a line down and says, wait, is because if you can control, listen carefully, if you can control your sex drive now, the result of that has a profound spiritual impact. That is how a man, a woman, becomes in their spiritual life dynamic. If you want to be dynamic, control your sex life, but you lose it, you rob yourself of tremendous joy. Number five. You get involved in immorality now, this sin could be reproduced in the lives of your children to the third and the fourth generation. Exodus chapter 20. Exodus chapter 20 and verse 5. The sins of the fathers are visited to the children to the third and the fourth generation of those who hate me. I often wondered why that was so, third, fourth generation, until one day I was at my grandmother's home and my mom was with me and my son was with me. And it suddenly hit me like a lightning bolt. I was sitting in the living room looking around and here was my grandmother, my mother, me and my son, four generations. And it suddenly dawned on me how the behavior patterns of my grandmother could have a direct bearing on the behavior of my son. This could impact your own children's life. A weakness in the area of morality today may come back to haunt you in the lives of your children. Let me illustrate. David committed one act of adultery. Here's what happened. You tell me if he was ripped off. The child conceived by that adulterous relationship with Bathsheba died. His son Amnon committed incest with his own half-sister. His son Absalom lost all respect for his dad and even sought to kill David. And his son Solomon said, my dad had so much fun with one, imagine what 700 would be like. So he married 700, hired 300 concubines, prostitutes, a thousand women. And then he wrote in the book of Ecclesiastes, it's vanity. The guy was on a total hormone high and it didn't satisfy. And I love the epitaph. On David's tombstone, 2 Samuel 13, 37, David mourned for his son every day. Did he get ripped off? For a 90-second goose bump? You better believe it. Number six, it could result in an immoral lifestyle. It could result in an immoral lifestyle. Romans chapter 1. Let me share with you a very important principle. I made this very clear, at least I tried to yesterday in Foundations. So if you heard it then, listen again, because it's important enough, it should be repeated. Listen. The Christian life is nothing more than a series of seemingly insignificant choices. The Christian life is nothing more than a series of seemingly insignificant choices. And the problem with you and me is we, looked at, we look at our individual choices in isolation from our life as a whole. And when we look at that one choice, we convince ourselves that if I blow it here, no big deal. It's just one act on one Friday night in one bedroom. So what? But the problem is that that choice becomes a string of choices. 
And before you know it, if you make the wrong choices long enough and consistently enough, you are now embroiled in a lifestyle. You understand that? In Romans chapter 1, verse 24, we read three times in this passage these words, God gave them over. That is a frightening phrase. What that means is this. When God looks in your heart and mine and sees the desire of our hearts, God may simply abandon us to those desires. You have heard me say it before. The most frightening thing about God that I know is that God many times will give me what? Exactly what I want. And if God looks into your heart and God discerns in you a desire to live an immoral lifestyle, the point in time may come when God will abandon you to it. And at that point, you become a slave. Romans 1.24 God gave them over in the lust of their hearts to impurity that their bodies might be dishonored among them. In our nation, we have come to that place. It happened in the late 1960s. Time magazine cover story back then, sexual revolution in progress. And at that point, historically in our nation, God abandoned us as a nation to our desire for immorality. You can pump it into your home Playboy channel. You can drop a quarter at a newsstand and get all of the porno filth you want. You can even expose yourselves to the bodies of little children, kitty porn, to the hilt. God has given us over to it. God forbid He should do that to us as individuals. Number seven, it could result in you becoming a homosexual. It could result in you becoming a homosexual. Would you please write this down? Modern psychology notwithstanding, homosexuals are not born, they are made. You heard me say it last week, it's not a hormonal imbalance. And it's not because they gave you a Barbie doll instead of a Tonka truck, for crying out loud. And I watched the movie the other night, Monday night, um, An Early Frost, about the kid who got AIDS. And one of the most profound statements in that movie was this. When the boy was talking, he was, I guess, in his uh, early 20s, and he was starting out on a law career, and he had everything going for him, and he found out he had AIDS, right? And he made confession to his parents, and his dad absolutely hit the fan. And the boy sat down with his dad and he said something to this effect. Dad, at least I have come to the place in my life where I have accepted who I am. Well, I wish I could have jumped into my TV and grabbed that guy and told him that is not who you are. That is what you have chosen to be. Here it is. Verse 26 of Romans 1. For this reason, number two now, second, God gave them over. God gave them over to degrading passions. What is that? A guy has been given over to immorality. He has absolutely fried himself through immorality. And then God looks in his heart and sees the guy wants more. And God abandons him to homosexuality. He is on the road to becoming a sexual burnout. For this reason, God gave them over to degrading passions. The woman exchanged the natural function for that which is unnatural. In the same way, men abandon the natural function of the woman. Now, here it is. This is the grossness of immorality, of uh, homosexuality. They burned in their desire one toward another. The abomination is more than the act. The abomination is a whole mindset where a man burns in his heart for a man. That is a total perversion of God's created order. Let me put it to you this way. God will not judge a homosexual. A man who is a homosexual has already been judged. 
The homosexuality is the judgment of God in his life. God giving him over to it. That took place in our country in the late 1970s and now the early 1980s. Where homosexuality in America has become, let's face it, an alternate acceptable lifestyle. The symptoms are everywhere. I'll give you just a quick one. Two months ago, Disneyland changed the 25-year-old policy. I don't know if you know that. For 25 years, Disneyland has not permitted same-sex couples to dance on their dance floors. Two months ago, they reversed that policy, and the gays can come at will and dance all they want and express in any way they want their homosexual tendency in front of the whole world at Disneyland. Now, you say, big deal. All right, big deal. I look at a pimple on your arm. I say, big deal, until you have tests made and find out you've got cancer. Now, three times God says, I gave them over. And when we hit the third point, I think we are almost to the brink of no return in this country. Let's find out what it is. Number eight. This could result in you becoming an atheist. This could result in you becoming an atheist. Verse 28 of Romans 1. Just as they did not see fit to acknowledge God any longer. Atheism. One time I was leading a college Bible study. We had about a hundred guys packed into this room. They were stuffed everywhere. They were in the fireplace. They had potted plants on their laps. They were everywhere. And right in the middle of this Bible study, this guy was there. He had never been there before. And he stood up right in the middle while I'm teaching. He stood up and he had a T-shirt on. And the T-shirt had these words, too cool for God. And the guy shouted out at the top of his voice, total interruption of my deal. He shouted out and he said, he said, you're a liar. You're deceiving everyone. You're a modern-day Hitler. Well, that got my attention. So I stopped my lesson and I said, I beg your pardon? He said, I don't believe in a God. I said, so? He said, no, you didn't hear me. I don't believe in God. I'm an atheist. I said, so what do you want, a standing ovation? I found out later from some friends who knew him that he came there purposely to engage me in a debate and his strategy was to make me look like a fool in front of a hundred college students and discredit my whole ministry. So I said, what do you want, a standing ovation? He said, you can't prove that God exists. This is what I said. I said, do you know that you just made an admission about yourself in front of all of these people that I bet you didn't want them to know? He said, what's that? I said, you just admitted to a hundred college students that you're a sexual pervert. guy looks stunned. I read him this verse. I said, if you're really a true atheist, then you have a moral sexual twist in your life, and I bet you didn't want him to know. That guy sat down, didn't make a peep the rest of the night. If somebody says to you they are an atheist, I guarantee they have a moral twist in their life. You see, you do one of two things. You either get rid of the immorality that is making you feel guilty or the God that is making you feel guilty, and most people will choose to get rid of God rather than their immorality. It could lead to becoming an atheist, Romans 128. Number nine, and i got to pick up the pace. It could lead to a depraved mind, Romans 128. Here's the third God gave them over. They did not see fit to acknowledge God any longer. God gave them over to a depraved mind. What is a depraved mind? A depraved mind is a brain that can no longer distinguish between right and wrong. We are at that point in our nation. You own an apartment building, you can rent to whomever you want, you can deny rent to whomever you want, unless they have AIDS. Then in some cities, the law requires you to rent. Is that a depraved mind? You better believe it. 
If we reach the point, and it could happen in this decade, when God abandons us to that, God help us. God help us. We are on the brink of hitting the point in this country where we are beyond the point of no return. Number ten, it could result in a seared conscience. A seared conscience is a conscience no longer able to feel sensitivity toward wrong. Much like drinking hot coffee and burning your tongue to the point where you can't taste any longer, a seared conscience is a conscience that can't feel the twinge of guilt any longer. 1 Timothy 4 and verse 2. By means of the hypocrisy of liars seared in their own conscience as with a branding iron. I had a fellow in my youth group a number of years ago who told me every time he looks at a girl, he mentally undresses her. And I asked him, don't you feel guilty? He was, a, he was immoral to the hilt. Don't you feel guilty? Classic answer. I did it first, but I've learned how to overcome that. No guilt. He didn't learn how to overcome anything. He simply seared his conscience. That could happen to you. 11, 12, and 13 are very obvious, so they won't take a lot of time. Number 11, it could result in unwanted pregnancy. It could result in unwanted pregnancy. There is no form of birth control 100% effective except one. And I'm happy to be able to stand here and tell you what that one is. Obedience to the Word of God. Obedience to the Word of God. It might interest you to note that every year in this country now, one and one-half million unborn children are slaughtered like Baal worship of old laid on the altars of our own immorality. 17 million since the Supreme Court legalized abortion in this country. Number 12, it could result in venereal disease. One-fourth of all high school students will contract a venereal disease before high school graduation. You know the two that are getting big press today. Herpes, though that has now been eclipsed. By the way, once you get it, you've got it. You don't get rid of it. And then the other one, obviously, is AIDS. AIDS. I was interested this morning. This is today's daily news. This morning's daily news, hot off the press. I was interested to read the headline, Columbia Volcano Buries Towns. The estimates are 20,000 people were killed by a wall of lava yesterday pouring through their town near Bogota, Colombia. That is big news. But as big as that is, and they're calling it, if the estimates are true, 20,000 people, they are calling it one of the greatest natural disasters in the history of man. And yet in the face of news like that, front page, just below it, capturing the headlines, AIDS. It is on the front page of every newspaper every day in our country. We have become AIDS-obsessed in America. And five years ago, I had never even heard of it. One year ago, the Center for Disease Control in Atlanta, Georgia, came out in Newsweek magazine making the statement, quote, we have lost the war against venereal disease in this country. The article went on to say, if we do succeed in finding a cure for AIDS, it won't be long before another disease takes its place. We will never, ever, ever, um, we will never, ever eradicate venereal disease. Well, God said that way back in Romans 1. Why in the world don't we listen? Did you know that AIDS is in the Bible? Here it is. Romans 1.27. Men with men committing indecent acts and receiving in their own persons the due penalty of their error. Don't you ever be deceived. God will not be mocked. 
Whatever you sow, you will reap. I said it last week, and I'll say it again. Homosexuals are not a class of people deserving rights. They are a group of sinners deserving wrath. And then finally, number 13. Sex could become your master, and you could become its slave. God forbid the day should ever come when I am nothing more than a two-bit slave to my hormones. Romans chapter 6. Romans chapter 6. Verse 16. Do you not know that when you present yourselves to someone as slaves for obedience, you are slaves to the one whom you obey? Now listen to me. When God said no sex outside of marriage... Is he an old man, outdated, irrelevant, cosmic killjoy, divine party pooper out to wreck your fun? Or is that the most loving act God ever did aside from the cross itself, drawing a line, grabbing you and me by the shoulders, shaking us, and saying, I've given you a wedding present, don't abuse it, it'll kill you. When are we going to listen? Bow your heads with me in prayer. Every head bowed, every eye closed. Listen to me very carefully. Many of you in this room are virgins. And to you I say, God bless you. You are a minority in our nation. Part of the standard of righteousness God is raising up in a day when the enemy has come into our land is a flood. I want to challenge you today to make a vow as we close right now. A vow. That is a very serious thing. Ecclesiastes says don't vow a vow unless you intend to pay. I take no delight in fools. Pay what you vow. I want you to make a vow and the vow is this. God, I will not give my body to anyone except my husband or wife and then only after marriage. But there are some of you today, tragically, who have already blown it. What about you? Is it too late? Are you a sitting duck now for 13 possible consequences? If you blew it and then came to Jesus Christ, no problem. You're a new creature. That you that committed immorality is dead and gone. That sin has been buried in the deepest sea and God has forgotten about it. You're clean. You're pure. If you committed immorality, then came to Christ. You're pure. But what if as a Christian you committed immorality? As a Christian, you engaged in a sexual act. Is it too late for you? I've got some good news and some bad news. The bad news. You blew it. And you blew it bad. But the good news. In 1 John 1, 9, and I'll need to define a word because we have really watered it down. In 1 John 1, 9, God said, if you confess your sin, I will be faithful and just to forgive you of your sin and cleanse you from all unrighteousness. 
The word confess is not a flippant, casual little I'm sorry. The word confess means to say the same thing about your sin that God does. What does God say about that sin? Three things. God says, I hate it. Because of the way it will destroy you, I hate it. God says, secondly, it breaks my heart. Grieve not the Holy Spirit, it breaks my heart. And finally, God says, don't do it again. If you want to enjoy cleansing from that sin, you must confess to God. But understand what confession is. It is to come before God with a holy hatred of that sin, hating it as God hates it. It is to come before God with a broken heart, as David did in Psalm 51. Broken over the sin, not the fact that you got caught, but over the sin itself. And then thirdly, to make the same vow that these others will make today. God, I will not do it again. I will keep my body in purity reserved for the one you bring into my life as my husband or my wife. And only then will we share it at the right time after marriage. And if you are willing to confess it in that way this morning, in a sense... God, because He will cleanse you from all unrighteousness, in a sense, God will almost bring you to the point of making you a virgin again. You will be pure again. You've got one more chance. Don't blow it. In this moment of silence, I want you to pray that prayer right now. If you are a virgin, make the vow right now. God, I will reserve my body in purity. Reserve for the one you bring into my life as my marriage partner. And we will share it only after marriage. But if you, as a Christian, have committed immorality with a holy hatred and a broken heart, you make that same vow to God. God, I blew it. I confess it. And I promise you, in a sacred vow, that I will share this only with the one you bring into my life as my marriage partner and only after marriage. And Father, as we are praying, you hear the prayers and you are pleased. Thank you for your grace that meets us at every point in our lives and rebuilds the broken pieces. Father, raise up out of this group this morning a standard of righteousness in our land Meeting head-on the enemy who has come into our land as a flood. In Jesus' name.